For many years, my brother lived next door to a professional runner. His name was Philemon Honick. At one point, he set two world records, so this guy is legit. He won a bronze medal in running in the Barcelona Olympics back in 1992. Well, for fun, my brother once challenged him to a race. And we had a video camera there. Now, it's an old family movie, uh, but we have it. So if you want to take a look at the screens, you'll see what happened. And we'll show the video now. There we go. It's an early morning. I'm out here where I occasionally like to jog on a golf course. And uh, yesterday I ran into a neighbor and I decided to challenge him to a little foot race. And uh, he seems to have done a little bit of running like myself. Philemon Hanna coming off a sub 28 minute performance at the Arturo Barrios Invitational and a 1321 5000 on the last track circuit event in Japan in September in fine form, the class of this field. He runs so elegantly, it's very difficult to tell that he's running as fast as he, in fact, is. I'm gonna meet him out here, if he shows. I haven't, haven't seen him yet, but uh, we'll wait around, see if he makes it. Uh, just do a little foot race, should be fun. And now the elegant 353 mile form of Philemon Honig. He takes the title in relative ease. It's really only fair to mention that uh, when I was in high school at Laurelwood Academy um, out in Gaston, Oregon, that I like to run. I like to do a little bit of running. We didn't have a, a track program per se, but uh, we didn't even have a track, but we did have a field. <laughs> and uh, I was pretty fast in running around that field. I, I, I just want to mention, um, you know, in, in fairness to my competitor today, that. I do have a little bit of experience in running. It wasn't a big school, there were about 300 students there, but uh, of the 300, I was, uh, I was certainly one of them, and uh, I ran pretty fast. So, probably important to mention that now as we're getting ready for this foot race today. 28.05 is the course record set in 1992 by Philemon Honick. I think he's got a chance to get it today. He is he's moving. Look at his arms. This is where, you, as an athlete, you love to finish in front of a crowd like this. Okay, my uh, competitor showed up. Uh, this is uh, this is Philemon. Uh, what, what's your last name? Hennick. Hennick. Yes. And uh, I was just saying earlier. Let's step up a little closer to the camera here. I was just saying earlier that uh, I've done a little running myself, and and you've done a little running too. Is that right? Uh, pretty much. Yeah. That you know. Uh, yeah run, uh, you know. And his arms are moving. He's at 27.52. He can't get the course record. He may five, be under 28 minutes. 27.57, 58, 59. Yeah. But anyway, we're going to go ahead and run this little race. Uh, I stuck an umbrella, a little post in the ground way down there, and uh, we're going to get going here, and uh, we'll, we'll do the finish right here and the start up there. And uh, good luck to you, because um, I feel like I'm a pretty strong competitor. So. All right, we'll see, you know. Yeah. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
I was second place, also known as last. Now here's the deal. Philemon Honick, I, I really admire the guy. I don't relate to him at all. I relate to my brother, fat flabbing in the wind, <laughs> threatening to bust open the spandex pants. I I. I relate to that. Now, I've done a little bit of running. I, I've completed a couple marathons, in fact. But, you know, at the starting line, you have all of these runners with their fancy, expensive stopwatches. Me, I always carry a calendar when I do a race like that. Uh, and then I have a standard response when people inevitably ask, so how did you do? And I always say, oh, I did really well. I qualified to run the Boston Marathon. Really? Yeah, if I was 96 and female, uh, which was true, I would have qualified at my time. Uh, I, I just don't relate to these guys. Philemon Honick told me one time, I asked him, tell me about your training. He said, oh, his whole face just lit up. He said, I love training. He said, I average 16 miles a day running. I do two hours of yoga every day. I do two hours of weight training every day. And he said, and this is what got me, I never put anything into my mouth unless it helps me to win the next race. I admire that. I don't relate to that <laughs> at all. In the Bible, there's people like that where I feel the same way. I mean, I admire their faith, but I don't relate to it. You remember the story of the Roman centurion, Matthew chapter 8, right? Where this guy has so much faith. He comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, look, is there any way that you could heal my servant? He's back home and he's sick. And uh, Jesus says, sure, I'll come to your house right now. He said, oh, you don't even need to come to my house. You just say the word. He had that much faith. You just speak the word. Now, we all at some level understand that words carry impact and import, right? You say something and certain things get done. There, there's power and authority in the words that we speak. I say to my daughters, hey, go clean your room. An hour later, I come back. The room's clean. Why? Because I just say the word. My wife's heading out to the store. I say, hey, I need some toothpaste. She comes back with a tube of toothpaste. Why? Because I just say the word. Right? Come home. The lazy boy is already reclined like I like it. Newspaper right there on the other side, a tall icy glass of lemonade. The remote controls right there with my favorite sports program on TV. And I recline back and she's there rubbing my neck and rubbing my feet. Why? Because I walked into the wrong house. <laughs> uh, 
My words have a little bit of power, but not that much. Well, here in the story, Matthew chapter 8, I thought I changed this thing so it wouldn't keep going off. Here we go. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished and said to those following him, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Here you have the Son of God marveling at his faith. Go, he says to the man, and it will be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that very hour. Now that is Olympic-sized faith, isn't it? Or you remember the story of the blind man, Bartimaeus, Jericho, who kept yelling out, Jesus, heal me, heal me. And his friends got annoyed by this and said, would you just shut up already? Finally, he does get the attention of Jesus because he won't be quiet. And Jesus asked him, what is it that you want? And he said, I want you to give me my sight back. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. That's Olympic-sized faith. Or you remember the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, exhausted all of her resources with the physicians of the day, and nobody could seem to help her. But she believes, if I could just get in the presence of Jesus, if I could just rub up against the hem of his garment, I know I would be healed. So we pick up her story in Mark 5 at once. Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came, fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. The Bible's packed with stories of spiritual Olympians where Jesus even marvels at their faith. And I admire these people, but I can't say I have that kind of faith. They look to Jesus like he was some sort of superhero in awe of what he could do if they could just get his attention. They'd just brush up against his garment. That's all it would take. They had that kind of faith because he was like this superhero. He was God, right? It's like the students saw their substitute teacher. Now, this particular classroom had a reputation for having the most unruly kids in all of the county, and so it was very difficult to find any substitute teacher with the courage to step into that classroom. This guy had recently had a biking accident, and so he was wearing a full uh, plaster cast on his chest. Uh, but with loose clothing and so on, you couldn't really tell. The uh, first day where he comes in as the substitute teacher, of course, the kids are going crazy, and all the windows are open, which means there's a breeze blowing his tie around. First thing he does, walks over to the desk, grabs the stapler, and boom, staples his tie <laughs> to his chest. The kid sat in awe. Discipline was not a problem that day. 
Why? Because they see him as larger than life. And a lot of people in scripture see Jesus for who he really is, the son of God, larger than life, like this epic superhero. And I admire all of these people, I do. I just don't relate to them. I don't have that kind of faith. Now, if you can relate to me, then there's somebody in the Bible you have to meet. Here's the conversation for this study. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 17, we pick up the story. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit who has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Max Lucado offers this commentary on the story. So where is the faith in this picture? (laughs) The disciples have failed. The scribes are amused, the demon is victorious, and the father is desperate. You'd be hard-pressed to find a needle of belief in this haystack. Where's the faith? Verse 20, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Out of the den of doubt comes this very timid prayer. It's a pitiful prayer, isn't it? You don't find this prayer quoted in any of the great hymns of the faith, if you can. He says to Jesus, if you can, then maybe you could help us. And Jesus calls him on it. Verse 23, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Notice we are told immediately that's how close his unbelief is to the surface. The man says to Jesus right away, yeah, see, that's my problem. I'm not sure I do believe. I have issues with faith. I'm not sure you can pull this off. But if you can, if you can, well, I want to believe, but help my unbelief because I've got a lot of unbelief. And so now, as you can imagine, things get really quiet. Everybody's wondering, what's Jesus going to do with a prayer like that? I imagine the disciples wonder, yeah, how is Jesus going to respond to this faith-impaired guy? We've never seen anybody try this with Jesus before, to come up and just say, yeah, if you can pull it off, And I really don't have a lot of faith that you can. And when Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. It's amazing to me 
how the man admits his unbelief, and how does Jesus respond to the prayer? He heals the boy, suggesting that when it comes to prayer, Jesus prefers honesty to certainty. So often we get that confused, don't we? We think belief is just knowing. It's this certainty. If I just pray the right prayer, if I get enough people praying, if I do things right, then Jesus will answer. Apparently, Jesus prefers an honest, authentic prayer that speaks truth. How often in our prayer life do we just recite what sounds pious and spiritual? What we always say in our prayers without even really even thinking about what it is we're praying. You sit down at a meal before a plate that is just heaped high with junk and deep fried fat and sugar and what do we pray? Bless this, O oh God, to the nourishment of my body. Like we're not even thinking about it. Hey, if God were to answer the prayer, he'd probably want us to just throw all that junk food to the dog, right? Well, except God loves dogs, so probably he'd want you to feed it to the cat. I'm, no, I'm kidding. Just a bad, bad joke. Don't send me pictures of your cats. I, I love your cat. But now notice, the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. You see, it doesn't take that much faith. It doesn't take a mountain of faith, just a mustard seed. That's all. Because, see, the power is not in the one who prays, or in the prayer. But it is all in the one who hears the prayer. Right? Jesus said, if you just have a mustard seed of faith, because he is the power, then you could actually move mountains. And oh, how I wish I had a mustard seed of faith. Because driving here this morning, I thought I was going to be raptured. The mountains are so beautiful. And oh, how I wish I had just a mustard seed of faith so that I could move all of your mountains here to Ohio. Because where I live, it is so flat, I can watch my dog run away for six weeks. <laughs> I would move those mountains. See, it doesn't take a mountain of faith, just a mustard seed, because the power is in the one who hears the prayer. And sometimes I think we do great damage to the body of Christ when we, in subtle ways, imply that it's our spiritual prayers. It's something we do that manipulates God. I just don't think that's true. Think back to when 
My wife, Cherie, had gone through a miscarriage. Our well-meaning neighbor who went to a local church, not our church, but when she heard about this, she said to her, and again, well-meaning, I understand it, but she said, well, next time that you get pregnant, then uh, let me know because we'll get all of our prayer warriors in my church praying, and then you will keep the child. Well, maybe... But see, again, I think this does damage because it suggests at some level that it's your fault that the miscarriage happened. Have you just gotten enough people praying, right? You just pray the right prayer. If you had done something different, then you would force God's hands. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't control God. God is God. And how and when God answers prayers as he does is not for us to know. The power is in the one who hears the prayer. And then it is that very weakness where we find strength, right? How does Paul put it? You know, in my weakest, I am most strong. I am strongest. I'll tell you my favorite story on this one, that of a kid who lost his left arm in a car accident. He loved judo, so he signed up to take uh, courses with a very respected sensei in the area. They worked week after week together on just one judo throw. After several months, the kid got a little impatient and said respectfully to the teacher, is maybe there any way that we could work on something else other than just that one move? And the teacher said, well, you, you haven't even come close to mastering that move, and until you do, no. Going to keep working on the same exact thing. Eventually, the time came when the teacher felt like his student was ready to enter into a tournament, and lo and behold, the kid did very well. Kept climbing up the ladder until at last he found himself in the championship round. Up against an opponent much more experienced, stronger, taller, bigger than he was, but this kid had that one move. In all of the rounds leading up to the championship, there had been one split second, an unguarded moment where the kid could take down the opponent. Well, in the championship match, at one point, the ref was ready to call it, to which the sensei interrupted and said, no, 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 you can't yet. My kid's still in it. Trust me, he's still in it. Let them go. And sure enough, split second, Kid put the opponent down. Next thing he knows, he's standing in the winner's circle next to a trophy taller than he is. Well, on the ride home, the kid asked the teacher, so how is this even possible? Because you and I both know I only know one move. How is it that I can take home the trophy when I've only got one move? teacher said a couple of things. First, you have mastered one of the most difficult throws in judo. 
The second thing, the only known defense for that move is for the opponent to grab the left arm. His greatest weakness was, in fact, his greatest strength. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 to 10. Again, this is from uh, the Carl Hafner version. God help me. Right now, I want booze more than breath. Curb my craving, please, please, please. Three times I pray that prayer. And three times God replies, I am all you need. My power is strongest in your weakness. But God, please, I beg, I am all you need. But God, I am all you need. But I am all you need. So, now I boast about my compulsions. Alcohol isn't the only one. There's food and work and websites, and the cravings come. I pray. God reminds me, my power is perfected in your weakness. And so I resign. Okay, God, I give up. I will brag about my addictions so your power might reside in me. All my shortcomings are but a window to showcase your grace. And I discover something very strange. At my weakest, I am strongest. The power is in the one who hears our prayer. When we humbly come in our depravity and weakness, is when we are made most strong because it is his strength in us. Give you one more picture. This taking us back to the 1992 Barcelona Olympics where my brother's neighbor competed and won a bronze medal. Of course, nobody remembers Philemon Honick from those Olympics. What you do probably remember is that iconic picture, that of uh, Jim and Derek Redman. Derek Redman, of course, was a phenomenal runner from England. He was by far favored to win the 400 meters. Uh, everybody was expecting him to uh, set a new world record. And sure enough, just as everybody had predicted, with 175 meters left in the race, he was cruising to the gold medal running effortlessly, leaving his competitors in the dust when suddenly he ripped his hamstring. Remember that? Crumpled to the track. Paramedics scurried to the scene, pulled out the stretcher, tried to put him on it when Derek Redmond refused. No. Just then, his father, Jim Redmond, pushed his way out from the stands walked down onto the field and toward the track. He was wearing a t-shirt that asked, have you hugged your kid today? And a hat that said, just do it. Pushed his way through all of the medics and says to his boy, are you okay? 
And Derek says to his father, I did not come here to start the race. I came here to finish. Very well, the father said. We're going to finish this race together. So they slowly lifted him to his feet. And they moved ever so slowly to the finish line. Sometimes the pain was so agonizing that he just buried his face in his father's T-shirt. Everybody in the stadium stood to their feet and applauded. Reports have it that most people were in tears, so inspired by this father helping his son to cross the finish line. Now, I ask you, what is it that prompted the dad to get up out of his seat to go to rescue his kid? Was it his kid's strength? Of course not. Just the opposite, wasn't it? It was his boy's weakness. And in his weakness, because of the father, he was made strong. 